for us on the way out of the movies, right, asking for money. Uh, and then I know other people who, who have a, a completely different narrative up and running in their mind when they see a poor person, okay? They see somebody who, because of the environment they were born into uh, or because of the larger societal kind of structures in place in our society, um, started with a disadvantage, uh, maybe had parents in prison, maybe had this or that going on, um, or they see a poor person and they're aware maybe of the statistic that a large percentage of people in poverty are actually mentally disabled. Um, and, and so they see that person and they have a, a much different reaction, right? I mean, I know both of these people. They have a much different reaction. They see someone who's a victim. They see someone who's struggling. They see someone who needs help, who deserves mercy and pity, who deserves grace, and they see themselves in the story as someone who has been blessed to be able to give. Um, two different stories, two different narratives impacting how you view the world around you, impacting how you think you play a role in the world around you. We've, we've talked about for Daniel 7, for the, the Christian people, for Jewish and Christian people, um, the people of God, Daniel 7 has played this kind of foundational role. This has been the story that, that God's people have used to understand the world around them. Um, and so this morning we'll read through the story again and we'll kind of work our way through um, a little bit more in depth than what we saw last week. Okay, so Daniel 7, we'll pick up in verse 1. A very, very important story uh, for the people of God. Um, we'll go through Daniel 7. We'll start in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. Verse 5. Behold another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise and devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth that devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Okay, so you've got this kind of vision happening um, way out there, okay, this kind of apocalyptic vision. And, and one of the truths that we drew last week about the story that we find ourselves in, that this story communicates to us, is that we live in a world where something has gone horribly wrong to God's good creation. This is what these beasts represent, these powers of evil in God's creation. They're mutants. They don't belong naturally in God's creation. They're God's creation gone wrong. And for the Jews, they saw themselves as living in a world where there were beasts on the loose, where there are these forces of evil on the loose doing things and persecuting people and causing all kinds of problems that God hadn't intended to be there in creation. There's this kind of power of evil at work in the world. And, and God's people, they, they communicate this by telling the story about a world where beasts came up out of the sea. I don't know if you were paying attention during scripture reading, but we read from Job 41, which is about uh, one of these ancient cosmic monsters. You remember um, just from, from earlier in the service, we talked about this last week. Throughout the Bible, there's this theme of conflict. There's this theme of God coming and pushing back that which is evil, pushing back that which is dark, and trying to control kind of what's gone wrong with his creation. And we talked about one of the ways the, the scriptures communicate this in the Old Testament is through this, this theme of monsters, these cosmic monsters that symbolized evil and chaos and destruction for ancient people. One of them was the Leviathan. 
And this was the scripture reading this morning from Job 41, 1 through 11. Uh, Job, you'll remember, has been complaining to God about the way he runs the world and the way things have happened to him. And God comes back with a series of, shall we say, adult conversations uh, with Job. So he starts off the, his response like this. If you want to talk to me, we'll talk. We'll talk like men. Gird up your loins, okay? So that's not how you want God to respond to you, all right? Just like a pro tip, if you're ever in a conversation with God, you don't want him to start by saying, put on your jock, all right? We're going to talk like men. <laughs> that's what he tells Job. He says, let's actually talk about how the world works. And then in Job 41, he, as he's listed out all these things, right? Who did this? Who did that? Who did this? Who did that? He says, by the way, do you want to battle the Leviathan? Do you want to cast the, the rod in there? Do you want to try to catch him? Do you want to try to control him? Or would you rather let me handle that? And he says, by the way, I am handling it, and I will handle it. If it's under heaven, it's mine. There is evil in the world. Things are seemingly at times out of control when Babylon comes and kills all of your people and exiles you. But I've got it in hand. I'll take care of it. I'll handle the Leviathan. Now, you could probably actually switch out Leviathan for any kind of fish if you go on an FC3 fishing trip, okay? Um, we just can't catch anything here. Uh, so it's, we have to trust God to do that for us. Um, so you, you have there, this, again, this kind of theme, right? These monsters come out of the sea, and they're kind of attacking and destroying creation. We live in a world where things have gone wrong. But the story doesn't end there in verse 9. It continues, as I look, this is Daniel talking. He's having this vision. Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Your best Morgan Freeman voice, right, at this moment. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then, because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed. And its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." So God's people, they, they saw themselves living in this story where, where something had gone wrong with creation. They were currently being persecuted. They were currently under the power of these evil, destructive forces. But the one who created it all was committed to rescuing and redeeming his creation. And a day was coming, they said, when God would show up and hold court and say, this is not allowed to be my creation. And, and a new kingdom would be established and given to one like a son of man. This kind of heavenly human figure. He rides on the clouds, which is a, what you'd say about God in the Old Testament, but yet he is like a human. He's the son of a man. And he would be given true dominion, true kingship over God's creation to run it wisely, rightly, the way that God had desired him to run it. So last week, that's what we talked about. We just kind of stayed in that story. We didn't try to interpret anything. We didn't try to match up any of the symbols in the story to symbols um, in our world or, or in the world. We just kind of said... This is the, the world that we're living in, according to the scriptures. A world where something's gone wrong, but God has determined to fix it. God has determined to rescue it and to redeem it. So today we'll keep on reading through the book of Daniel, and we will try to kind of um, look a little bit closer at who are these characters in the story, these four beasts, the son of man, the ancient of days. Who are these characters and what's happening? What the, what, what, what's going on with the plot here in the story? And if we can correctly identify that, then I think we'll be more able to correctly play our roles in the story. Um, we'll know what our responses should be to certain things. So we'll keep reading. Daniel himself wants an interpretation, okay, in verse 15. 
So it says this, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. Okay. So Daniel's a little freaked out. All right. By this dream he's had uh, in the middle of the night, I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So apparently there are um, some angels or, or messengers around in the dream, the vision. He goes up to him, says, what's going on here? So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the thing. So important here. This is like a God-given interpretation, okay? This is not Daniel discerning in the middle of the night. This is not the wise men casting lots. This is in the dream. He approaches somebody who gives him an inside take to what's happening uh, that he's seeing in front of him. Verse 17. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. These four great beasts are four kings who will arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints, and prevailed over them, until the Ancient of Days came. And the judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Then he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom, and the dominion, and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Now, as we started on Daniel, we've said there are some temptations we'll have to avoid as we study through the book of Daniel. One of these temptations is what we call the Bible code temptation, okay? And this is the tendency that Christians have, particularly evangelical Christians, to go to texts like this, kind of confusing, complex, prophetic texts, and to try to identify every small element in the text with something going on in their current global political um, situation, okay? Um, and so if that is the kind of thing you're into, it's not the kind of thing I'm going to give you, okay? Uh, and so you'll be a little disappointed. The good news is it's out there everywhere, okay? So quick Google search, and I promise you, you can find pages and pages of internet beauty with charts, okay? And every single word in Daniel 7 will be drawn out on the timeline, and this is Obama, and this is Bush, and this is Syria, and this is Russia, Okay? And every single thing is laid out for you, and you you can map out, right, the world's ending on September 21st, 2016, and, and you can kind of go to sleep at peace, all right? I mean, people do this with Daniel. You're aware of this? The last big apocalyptic kind of thing we had where people thought the world was ending, they were selling everything just a couple years ago, was out of Daniel 7, right? These texts are pretty flexible, is the point. If you work hard enough, you can make them look like they're pointing at a lot of things, so the word for us when we read them is caution, okay? It's a little bit of humility and a little bit of slowing down, okay? And not trying to nail down the tree so much that you miss the forest. Again, if you have any kind of sense of church history, you'll be aware that every generation 
since these were written, has thought that these texts applied to their generation, to their global political situation, right? This is kind of like um, one of those things where eventually someone will be right, but it probably won't be you. Does that make sense? Right? Like a classroom could say, this is going to be the year the teacher quits. Now, if every class says that, eventually one class will be right, right? The teacher's not immortal. They're not going to teach forever. But every class is saying that, okay, they're all going to be wrong. It's probably not a good prediction unless you have something substantial to back it up. Um, and so it's interesting to note, even as we get started here, I mean, we'll, we'll do this. We'll talk about who the four beasts might be. We'll talk about who the Son of Man is. Um, but it's interesting to note, even in the interpretation given by God, there's ambiguity. God or the angel, whoever's given this interpretation to Daniel, is very capable of making it explicit, right? This king is this person, and this king is this person, and this king is this person. Daniel has done this for other visions. He does not do this here. Sometimes he'll explain a symbol with another symbol. I mean, there's kind of this intended ambiguity to Daniel chapter 7, to the, to the vision, even to the interpretation of the vision. I think that should be a message to us that maybe we shouldn't get too caught up in trying to discern every last bit and piece. You've got to also remember what type of literature we're reading. It's apocalyptic. It's highly um, rich in metaphor and symbolism and, and even numerology. So the number four, right, is a very symbolic number um, in ancient texts. It means totality, wholeness, right? The four corners of the earth, the four pillars of the world, the four seas, um, the four great winds, all, everything, all of it. So some have suggested just as good of a reading as one, two, three, four kingdoms is these four kingdoms just represent all of the kingdoms of the world. All of the, the evil kingdoms will come and persecute against God's people. Ten itself is also a highly symbolic number. Um, so let me just give you one example of this. Um, why we need caution. Look in verse 25. At the very end of verse 25, um, this little horn has come up, okay, and he's persecuting um, God's people. He's changing the times and the law. And so most people, in your kind of classic exposition of this passage, will say that this little horn is the Antichrist. By Antichrist, what they mean is this one figure who will rise up as like Satan's main man and wage war on the earth. Now, that's based on a reading of Revelation, which is probably not your best reading of Revelation. Um, you're, they're already interpreting a whole bunch of symbolic things back into Daniel 7. But you got this little horn, right? Most people would put, say equals Antichrist in the sense of some guy in five years, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years, 2,000 years is going to come and be the Antichrist. He's going to do these things. And it's going to last for, you probably heard this, seven years. And the way they get the seven years is three and a half years and three and a half years. How they get this three and a half years, this first little part of it, is in verse 25. They shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Okay? Um, again, this is pretty straightforward classic. Okay? Three and a half. You combine this with some other text in Daniel and then Revelation again. You get two three and a half year periods, seven year period of tribulation. And people think they have this mapped out. But if you pause and look at Daniel a little bit closer, it doesn't actually say three and a half years. I mean, it just doesn't. It doesn't actually use the word years, not even in the Hebrew. Time, season. And, it, and, and the way most people do it is this first time would be one year, and then times would be two years, and then you have half this time. But here's my question. Why is times plural equaling two years? This is not a dual noun. This is not a duality. This is a plural, more than one could just be three years, four years, five years, a hundred years. It's just more than one, right? We're making all these little assumptions to go into it to try to kind of map out this, this future timeline. Um, in fact, again, a better symbolic reading of time, times, and a half a time would be this. Whoever this feature, whoever this, this king or evil power or whatever is, he's going to start out fast. Times. And then he's going to be ruling to where it seems like his rule will never end. 
times, plural. And then it's going to abruptly end when God steps in, half a time. Times, it starts out fast. It gets to where you can never imagine anything other than this, times, and then half a time. Boom, the ancient day steps in and something has changed, right? So a little bit of caution, I think, is advisable to us um, as we try to kind of work through Daniel 7 and, and these visions and, and kind of work through these interpretations. But if you go to verse 17, we do get an interpretation, okay, for these four beasts. These four great beasts, Daniel 7, verse 17 says, are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. Are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. So this is in your worship guide. The four beasts represent, seems like, the evil empires of this world whose rules undermine God's desires for his creation. These four great beasts represent the evil empires of the world whose rules, whose way of running the world, undermines what God desires for his creation. They um, influence and they increase violence and death and abuse and poverty and those sorts of things. Now, if you wanted to identify these historically, these four great kings or kingdoms, people have done so. There's two or three big options. I would think the more traditional option is the better one, and it would work like this. Um, the first king or kingdom would be Babylon. Then it would go Medo-Persia. Then it would go Greece. And then it would go Rome. Okay, and this fourth kingdom would be Rome when the Son of Man shows up and the kingdom of God is established. There are a couple other ways of doing it. Um, again, just you want to have, be cautious, right? Have caution. I definitely don't think Daniel is talking about um, Obama and about you know, the next president after that and those kind of things. I think this is something that his audience would have been able to resonate with. So if you'll indulge me, I'll show you a little bit how this works. Okay, So here's a little how you can play with the symbolism. To, to kind of see how these historical interpretations might work out. First beast, right? The kingdom of Babylon. Um, and again, these, this four-tiered system is similar to what you find in Daniel 2, four kingdoms and the four parts of the statue. So usually whatever you decide in Daniel 2 is what you'll decide also in Daniel 7. Um, so we've actually made this decision in Daniel 2. Um, this first beast is Nebuchadnezzar. You'll notice the imagery given for this beast is he becomes like a man. He has a mind like a man. If you'll think back to Daniel 4, what happens to Nebuchadnezzar? The king of Babylon. He gets turned into this kind of insane animal-like person, right? Where he thinks he's a beast, and then eventually he repents and is turned back into a man. People say there's some pretty clear symbolism. Even within the book of Daniel, right? This is in the same text. This king, representing Babylon, is turned into a man. So first beast is Babylon. Second beast um, would be Medo-Persia. The Persians rise up uh, and take over. Medo-Persia is real famous historically for having three great big military victories. They kind of established their kingdom. So we would point to these three ribs and the beast's mouth, okay? These three big military victories. In order, they take over Lydia, they conquer Babylon, and then they conquer Egypt. Um, again, real famous historically. The third beast um, is a leopard, is the symbolism given to it, with wings. So all of this imagery is meant to, to indicate fastness, speed, right? Um, not only is it a leopard and can just fly on the ground, it can literally fly, right? I mean, it's got wings as well. Um, so, so whatever this beast is the kingdom, there's kind of this speed element, this fastness to it. Again, if you know anything historically about the kingdom of Greece, you'll realize that Alexander the Great conquers the known world kind of overnight, right? I mean, historically, it's like oh, you blink and then you open your eyes and Alexander rules everything. You'll also be aware Alexander dies as a young man. Do you remember this? Anyone world history clicking in? Okay. Um, Alexander the Great dies when he's really young. He's been one of the most powerful, successful people in all of history. Because he dies so young, we don't know what happened to him. Um, there's no backup plan for his kingdom, right? There's no, like, 
plan for who takes over after I'm done. He has no kids, anything like that. So after he dies, a big mess is created, and there's this big power vacuum, people trying to grab for power. And his kingdom's broken up into four parts pretty quickly. And so that's how the Empire of Greece kind of starts to crumble, is it's immediately broken into four different sections. People look at this third beast and go, oh, look, it has four wings and four heads, right? Just like the Empire of Greece that once ruled the entire world very quickly was broken up into four parts. This fourth beast, which we identify with Rome, um, is not given much symbolism to it other than that it is uh, exceedingly strong, exceedingly terrifying. And its, its real importance in the story is its climactic place in the story. It's the one in charge when the Son of Man shows up. When the Ancient of Days holds judgment. Now, the reason we might think this scenario is most likely is because I think as Christians, you and I have good reasons for thinking that Rome was in charge when these things started to take place. So you've got this Son of Man figure. Okay, here are the characters, the four beasts. And then this Son of Man figure is, is going to show up um, after the Ancient Days kills the beasts, destroys what's evil in creation. And he's going to give this character um, the kingdom. He's going to give it the uh, dominion over his creation. So the Son of Man here represents the one who will establish God's kingdom and rid the world of evil. Okay, this is his role in the story. Now, what I want you to do is flip to Mark chapter 2 with me. Mark chapter 2 in your Bibles. Um, we're going to flip ahead a few hundred years. Babylon has fallen. Persia has come. Persia has fallen. Greece has come. Greece has fallen. Rome is now in charge. Biggest, baddest, nastiest empire to date. And this young Jewish guy shows up and goes around and starts preaching. And I want you to see what he's calling himself. Okay, I want you to see what his title is for himself as he preaches and as he travels around and ministers. So Mark chapter 2, we'll pick it up in verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum, that he there is Jesus, after some days it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. Now pay close attention to verse 10, okay? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. You'll see Son of Man there, capital S, capital M. It's a title that Jesus uses for himself. As you read through the Gospels, here's what you notice. People call Jesus a lot of things. In fact, in the book of Mark, this is one of the big themes of Mark, is who is this Jesus guy? What should we call him? What title should we give to him? Um, and one of the big things throughout the book of Mark is no one has any clue for the, like, the first half of the book, even on until the, the end of the book. People are just really at a loss for how they should talk about Jesus. Um, if you read closely through Mark, again, it's not really that even long of a book. I might suggest just reading it, sitting down just in one sitting, reading through Mark, and you kind of see what I'm getting at in a more holistic nature. The only people who consistently get right Jesus' identity, do you know who it is? The demons. Everyone else is confused. Even his disciples consistently get it wrong. He's a prophet. He's a reincarnation of Elijah or John the Baptist. 
he's this, he's that, he's a teacher, he's a rabbi, he's the Messiah. The demons, though, every time know exactly, it's kind of ironic as you're reading through the book of Mark. The one group of people who get it right are these demons who, who know exactly who Jesus is. Um, so people call Jesus a whole lot of things. But if you were to tally up all the different titles given to Jesus and then all the things he says about himself, what you'd find is this. By far, the favorite title Jesus had for himself, Son of Man. No even comparison, no competition. When Jesus talks about himself, he uses the title Son of Man, the background being Daniel 7, this story that was very famous, played a very foundational role for the Jewish people. We have other texts between the time of Daniel and the time of Jesus where people use this title, Son of Man, as a kingly title, as one who they were expecting would come. We know this, how Jews already use this. And Jesus shows up and says, I am the Son of Man. This is important because it's from Jesus' lips that you have this title. This is a, a kind of a revelation of what Jesus was thinking about himself, his self-consciousness, okay? When he saw the world around him, and when he saw his place in that world, he gave himself the title of Son of Man, the one who comes... And the beasts are destroyed, and he's given the kingdom. And God's kingdom is set up on earth as it is in heaven. I'm the son of man. Jesus here in the Sunday worship act thinks that he is, he believes he is this son of man who had been promised in Daniel 7, who the people had been waiting for. In fact, this is really the big difference between Christians and Jews. It's simply how they interpret the story. Jews would say, we're still waiting for this son of man to come, for the ancient days to slay the beasts. And Christians say, he came. I mean, he came and self-identified for us. This was him doing it in front of us, the Son of Man. Um, now, as you read through the Gospels, what you'll see is Jesus' life is characterized by a conflict of kingdoms. His life is characterized by a conflict of kingdoms. Again, if you read through the Gospels in one sitting, you'll see this in a much more dramatic way. Um, it seems like Jesus is consistently battling with other forces in creation. Um, it almost seems like he is behind enemy territory, behind enemy lines, and is coming and, and having to consistently confront other things in creation. And so if I were to ask you to describe Jesus to me and to describe some of the things that he did, some of the titles you might give him based on his actions, I think we'd get some pretty common answers. He was a miracle worker. He was a preacher or a teacher. Okay. He forgave people's sins. He was a healer. Okay. He healed people's um, sicknesses. But I wonder how long it would take us for someone to say, exorcist. Jesus was a, an exorcist. Because if you read through the Gospels, this is the conclusion you come to. That one of the most um, repetitive things Jesus does, one of his most important roles in the Gospels, is casting out demons. Now the word exorcist has some baggage to us, right? We know you know, weird to think about Jesus like an exorcist. And I'm, I'm not suggesting that what you see in Hollywood, right, is probably what's happening with Jesus here. But as you read through the Gospels, this seems like what's happened. Jesus has come into a demon-infested world. And he consistently comes up to demons who, by the way, are quite scared of him. You know who he is. He comes up and they say, what have you come to do with us? Why are you here? And Jesus says, shut up and get out. And they shut up and they get out. Jesus not only conflicts with the demons, um, at times he's actually said to be someone who's working for Satan um, as a demon, um, and Jesus gives the classic, right, if I was a demon, why would I be killing my own group, right? I'd obviously be fighting a kingdom divided, can't stand, have you heard that phrase? That's from Jesus' teachings on why he's not working for Satan, okay? Because I've been kicking their butts this whole time. Why would I be working against them if I was really on their team? Um, Jesus, at times, comes into conflict with sickness, <coughs> In most of the gospel narratives, when Jesus encounters someone who's sick, do you know what he does? He doesn't say, God has a plan for this. 
right? This sickness kind of fits into his perfect plan for your life. He says, don't be sick anymore. And they're not sick anymore. He heals them. He sees sickness and says, this is not something that belongs in God's kingdom. It's not how God wants human bodies to work. And so your body shouldn't work that way anymore. And he gets rid of it. And on occasion, he comes up to someone who's dead, and he considers in his mind that life is better than death, and that God intended people to be alive and not to die. And he says, get back up from the grave. Come alive again. This is Jesus in conflict, okay? Throughout the Gospels, there's this kind of battle motif where he comes and says, all that's wrong with God's creation, get out. I'm getting rid of. I'm establishing God's creation. This is what he says in Mark 1, 14, the very first words out of his mouth in Mark. The time is fulfilled, verse 15, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is now. What you've been waiting for is now. God's kingdom is showing up and creation is being rearranged to reflect what God desires for it. Through me and through my person. So what you see with Jesus is that he preaches and demonstrates God's kingdom. He preaches and demonstrates God's kingdom. This is what his life is about. He shows up and says God's kingdom is coming, and then he uses his resources, he uses his skills and abilities to bring the kingdom, to further the kingdom. When he sees an area or a situation or a person which is not characterized by God's desire, God's will, he changes it. He brings God's desires and will to that situation. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven coming to earth in the form of Jesus. This is, the, this is what Jesus does, right? If you had to give a summary statement, um, in the Gospels. In fact, you'll find these summary statements throughout the Gospels, which are really important. In ancient literature, you don't write for a long time, right? Like, you just don't get these Moby Dicks, right? I mean, it's just way too expensive. It just, it's kind of outrageous. So you have to pay particular attention to the summary statements in short ancient literature, because they're packing a lot of heat, right, in just that one or two sentences. And all the little summary statements you get in the Gospels, you see something of this nature. He preached the kingdom of God, and he healed the sick and cast out the demons, he spoke the kingdom, and he did the kingdom, and he brought the kingdom. This was Jesus, and this was his life. Now flip with me to Mark chapter 8. One last thing we, we kind of need to think about here um, in Mark 8. So as Christians, we identify the son of man in Daniel 7 with this young Jewish man, Jesus, who um, lived and, and ministered 2,000 years ago um, in Palestine and, and Upper Galilee. Um, Mark 8, look at verse 27. This is a very interesting passage. Mark 8, 27. You'll see a couple important things going on here that will help us out as we think through Daniel chapter 7. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Kind of an important background. This was a famous city um, memoriated for Caesar, for the king of the Roman Empire. Uh, and on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. Again, this question, who am I? But who do you say I am? He says, and Peter answers them, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now, Christ is this title for, for Jewish king, this Davidic king, okay? Jesus does not call himself the Messiah that much. The early Christians call him the Messiah a lot. Jesus, though, consistently wants to speak in son of man language. There's probably a few reasons for this. One is, when you talk about yourself being the Messiah, you end up getting killed pretty quickly in the first century, right? This is kind of what happened to you. Um, so notice, again, they're in Caesarea Philippi, and, and claims of Messiahship are being thrown out. This would be like if I went and stood in front of the White House, right, in a historic kind of photo opportunity. And I had a group of people, and I said, who am I? And they all said, you're the president of the United States of America. Barack Obama might have different things to say about that, right? I mean, NSA would be all over my emails and my telephone calls and all that stuff, right? I mean, it's a polemical statement. 
Yeah, they already are. <laughs> More ways than one, yes. You are the king, he says in the Roman king city. You are the Messiah. So, so one of the reasons we think historically Jesus doesn't want this title to be floating around is because it's not his time to die yet. Eventually he will be killed for being a false king, a traitor, for, for claiming Caesar's title. But it's not his time yet. And, and Greek people, Roman people, aren't as familiar with Daniel 7, right? So a Jewish audience might catch the reference, I'm the son of man. But your average Roman centurion is not very well read in the literature of Daniel, right? So they're going to miss this son of man thing. It's a little subversive. Um, another reason is because of this. The Jewish people had a lot of baggage that came with this title, Messiah. Over time, they expected and imagined that the Messiah, the Jewish king who would reign on God's behalf, would reign like other kings, but just bigger and badder. He'd have a bigger stick, bigger swords, bigger weapons. And they expected this king to come and spill Roman blood. Lots of it. They expected it to be like when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took over Israel, except bigger and badder if the tables turned on them. And Jesus consistently thought the gospel was just trying to get this out of their system. And say, I am the son of man. I am the king that you've been waiting for, but it's not going to happen the way you think it is. I don't rule like the beast rule. My kingdom doesn't work like the beast kingdom works. We don't do this with swords. We don't do this with bombs. We don't do this with guns. We don't do this with coercive first. We do this with love and service and sacrifice and forgiveness with the power of God at work even over evil. So Jesus says, don't tell them this. Don't tell anyone about this in verse 30. And then if you look in verse 21, um, 31, um, real closely, the language shifts. He began to teach them that the who, what's the word? Son of man. Jesus doesn't deny he's the Messiah, but he says, let's not use that word, all right? Don't, don't talk about this. And it says, and let me tell you about what's going to happen to the Son of Man. He, he wants to shift his language back into Son of Man mode. And he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He said this plainly, but Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That's not what happens to the Messiah. Peter had just proclaimed he was the Messiah. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter's right in this Messiah claim, but he was wrong in the content. He filled it out wrong. He colored the picture wrong. Jesus says, The Son of Man is coming, but, but my kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. Jesus' kingdom, the God's kingdom that he establishes, it's, it's an upside-down kingdom where you get your life by losing your life. And where Jesus will defeat the beast by letting the beast kill him. And we're the last or the first. And we're the hungry are those who will be fed. And those who are mourning will be those who will be rejoicing. And those who are poor will have their needs met. Jesus' kingdom flips the world structures on its head, upside down. It's kind of this backward logic throughout. Jesus says, I am the son of man. I have come to establish God's kingdom. But it's going to happen in a paradoxical way. It's going to involve some things that you had not imagined it might involve, including a cross. And Jesus had this group of people, okay? So, so if we connect the story in that way, if we see Jesus during his lifetime as bringing God's kingdom, as, as fighting against all that has gone wrong with God's creation, then we also need to see ourselves as part of the group that he started to join him in doing so. If you look at what he says to his disciples in verse 34, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after him, um, come after me, let him just deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Verse 35, whoever would save his life will lose it. Again, it's upside down logic. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Um, C.S. Lewis has this famous quote where he says that all of creation, every kind of square inch of creation, um, is claimed and counterclaimed at the same time by two forces. Um, he says there's no neutral ground in creation. And, and I think you could expand this. There's no, no neutral time in your life. There's no neutral seconds in your life. There's no neutral actions in your life. He says that every square inch, you see us, Lewis, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. You're with me or you're against me. You're moving in my direction or you're moving in the other direction. I think sometimes we think we can make a time out from life and just kind of sit there neutral. But the fact is, when you're sitting there neutral, you're not going forward, right? Which is falling behind. Every second we have, every day we have, we're either getting closer to Christ, closer to his kingdom, or we're, we're not. We're either stagnant or moving backwards, which I think come out to be the same thing. Jesus says here, whoever's ashamed of me and my words in this generation of him, will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the clouds? Remember Daniel 7, he's a cloud rider of the Son of Man. There's an allusion to Daniel chapter 7. Jesus says, I'm getting a team of people who are going to also lose their lives to find it, who are also going to take up their cross in order to bless the world, who are going to live in my kind of upside-down kingdom. This is the story that Jesus is inviting us into this day, to see ourselves on his team, on his group of people, out in mission on the world to bring God's kingdom more and more to earth. His people, Jesus' people, are called to join him in battle. His people are called to join him in battle. But again, the battle is not a physical battle, Ephesians 6. We don't fight against flesh and blood. We fight with spiritual weapons, 1 Corinthians. We fight with love and forgiveness, sacrifice, service, by giving up our lives. That's how we conquer. And God's people are called to bring God's kingdom with their words and their actions, just as Jesus did. He spoke and he did the kingdom. And we're to speak and to do the kingdom of God. To use our resources... When we can, to further God's kingdom around us. So when Jesus encounters someone who's sick, he says, be sick no more, right? Just no more, no more sickness. I don't have that kind of power. <laughs> I don't have that like resource to tap into. If you know me for very long, okay, I don't often walk up to sick people and reach into <clears> my back <throat> pocket and grab that ability and say, no more sickness. Um, I have different resources and skills and talents and abilities, and so do you. You have certain skills and abilities and resources, and you have certain periods of time in your life. And what God calls us to as Christians is, is to join his team and to use those resources, to use that power, to use that which is available to us to love and to bless, to see situations where there is not God's kingdom and to help enact God's kingdom, to forgive and to serve and to sacrifice. God's people said there, there's this world, right, with these beasts that come out of the, the water. And they destroy and they ravage, they ransack creation. But thanks be to God, he sent one like a son of man who came and said, the time is now for this to end. The time is now for God's kingdom to start and to slowly grow like a seed. And you and I are, are learning, I think, slowly but surely, for anything like me, learning to see the world around you in these terms, to see yourself as someone called to that story, someone called to play this role in that story, someone called to follow Christ 
on his mission to bring the kingdom to earth as it is in heaven, which is what you see the early church doing in the book of Acts, right? I mean, I mean, they're kind of verbatim going after Jesus. They're casting out demons. They're healing the sick. They're bringing God's kingdom in the ways that they can. This is our role. This is my role. This is your role. Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. Sometimes it looks a little less spectacular when we're doing it. And it's easy to get discouraged. And that's why I think we have texts like Daniel 7 to read and regain the significance of what we're caught up in and what our roles are to play in that story, in the story of God's rescue and redemption of his creation. Let's pray together.